So Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this Babla trying to say? Other remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are pre presenting? You bring some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend the time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, and if he need anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them, and the exact place where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets has, have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they hear, heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed it. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman called Damarius, and a number of others. Let us come and pray before we think about this good passage from Acts. Let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can think about your word and the challenges in it for our lives. And we pray that we'd grow as your people 
uh, in response to it and respond well to you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, love is a funny word, isn't it? I can say I love my wife and I love chocolate. I love my mum and I also love my lawn without bindies in it uh, so I can play barefoot soccer. It's a word that we use uh, very easily, but we can mean very different things when we talk about love. And yet it's good for us to stop, pause, slow down, to think about what we do really love. Who is it or what is it that we really do love? Do we really love God? Or do we really love to serve ourselves instead? Will we love ourselves more than God? Well, the challenges from this talk uh, surround who or what we ultimately love and what we ultimately serve. And today, as we look at this passage in Acts, we see that Paul challenges the people about who they'll serve in Athens. As we start out in Acts, we see that Paul's on the move. He's moved down from Macedonia. He's been to the little town of Thessalonica, where he's been uh, basically chased out of town because he's proclaimed that there's another king. Defying Caesar's decrees, he says there's another king, one called Jesus. So he heads south to another place called Berea, where the bad characters again uh, follow on. So we're left seeing him deported and moved off by some friends down to Athens. And while he's at Athens, he's waiting for his fellow workers, for Timothy and Silas. And as he looks around, he sees that there's a forest of idols. And it bothers him. Idolatry abounds in Athens, and the kind of idols that they can see there would have been among the others, Zeus, whom they saw as the sky god, who they believed sent the rain. Uh, Dionysius, they believed, caused the grapes to grow and the, the sap to flow in trees. Aphrodite was concerned with reproduction and fertility. And then there was Hermes, uh, the son of Zeus, who was the patron god of merchants and trade. Now, the worship of these ancient gods grew probably from farming backgrounds where the farmers wanted their fields blessed. And so they offered sacrifices and ceremonies uh, in order to call on the gods to help them or to keep them at bay if they were terrified of them. They believed that they were surrounded and protected or threatened by the power of invisible gods. And so they came to love their rituals and their sacrifices, which they were keen to do perfectly. It didn't always matter what they believed. As long as they did the, the ritual perfectly, that was the important thing because they wanted to gain the cooperation of the gods. Well, that's the setting that Paul finds himself in and it bothers him. We can see that in verse 16, if you're reading along there. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It eats him up to see the people living like this. But he does something about it in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. He knows that this wasn't the way God intended for his people to live. 
And he wants them to know God and God's plans for the world. And so he seeks to set about and engage the people of Athens with the good news about Jesus. He wants them to have a different kind of worldview, a worldview that includes the living and true God instead of idols. But as he speaks, he's confronted by some philosophers. We'll see that in verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, for the Epicureans, uh, pleasure was the chief end in life. Uh, In particular, they wanted tranquility of mind. They wanted to be free from passions and also superstitions and thought that God, if he was there, was very remote and uncaring. The Stoics, on the other hand, uh, were were a bit more like uh, those in Star Wars, the Force. When Obi-Wan talks about uh, the Force is a Force world that surrounds us and it's within us, uh, that we're part of it, Uh, they were pantheists. They believed that there was a divine ordering in things, that the divine was in things. And that the key to life was to live according to that principle that indwelt all things and to live according to nature. They believed in self-sufficiency as the highest good. So these were the people that uh, Paul was engaging. And the responses to Paul were different as he spoke. One made a derogatory remark, calling him a babbler. And the word comes from the idea of a bird that's flying past and drops little seeds and things. The idea is he's only got snippets of wisdom or knowledge. He doesn't know what he's talking about, was what they were trying to say. But the other comment was more dangerous, saying that Paul was advocating other gods. Well, that was the charge that was made to another Greek called Socrates. He was charged with that, and it led to his death. Now, Paul's already been used to being marched on from different places and persecuted, and it looks like the tone of this message could be turned up a bit as well at this point, as we see next that Paul is taken. He's taken to a preliminary hearing of the Council of Elders known as the Areopagus. Now, it's interesting because the council is called the Areopagus, and the place they meet's the Areopagus. And... uh, Areopagus means hill of Ares, which was the Greek god of war. Later, the Romans took over some of the names of the Greek gods and uh, they took Ares' name and called him Mars. And so it's on the hill of Mars. Mars Hill is where he's at. In verse 19, we'll pick it up there. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Some have said they were interested in what is new, not so much what is true. But the tone here is one of scrutiny. And it could lead to an escalation in trouble for Paul if they deemed that it was a threat to their way of life. But Paul, not Paul, 
Paul finds a way to try to engage with them and blend with their community as he speaks. We see in verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul looks like he's starting out by complimenting the Athenians. He describes them as very religious as he uh, looks at their idols and he says they're, they're religious on that, that account. But as it turns out, this begins as what we might know as a backhanded compliment. The kind of thing that when my kids say, Dad, you don't have a lot of trouble with head lice, do you? That's right. That's their way of saying, Dad, you're pretty bald, aren't you? So this is Paul saying, you know, I can see you're very religious, but that's the very thing he's going to attack. It's a bit of a, a backhanded compliment. He's not really saying that's a great thing because he wants to challenge their idolatry. It's a dark and empty approach to life. And he wants to offer them some uh, real hope, some new hope with life with the Creator through his Son. And so he finds a way to get a hearing for the good news about Jesus and he begins to speak about an unknown God or an unnamed God that's, that there's an altar that's dedicated to. And whoever it's dedicated to, Paul's quick to fill in the blanks and say that there is a God who is there and that you don't know him personally yet. But this God is not like your idols. The God of the Bible is not like an idol. We'll pick it up in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He's saying it's crazy to think that God needs to be, have his needs met by humans. He doesn't need to be served by human hands, because he's the one who's, after all, made humans and made everything else. It's ridiculous to think that God needs his needs met by people. And Paul continues to speak about the way pretty much the Bible presents human origins. He gives them a message about the creator God. And he gives the philosophers some insight as to who this God is and what he's done. From verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Paul explains that God lacks nothing. He doesn't need to be uh, supplied with his needs of anything by anyone. He makes 
humanity from one man, establishes the, the places for people in order that they might reach out for him. And yet there's also a twist in this because uh, we're told that God is not far from each one of us. He's very close. He's near. God is omnipresent. He's all present. And we cannot run away from him even if we wanted to. And further, Paul quotes one of their own poets, seeming to try to engage with them. He picks up one of their own poets and makes the point that the reverse of idolatry is true. Since people are made in the image of God, they shouldn't think God is an image made from man's design or skill. The living and true God, according to Paul, is not like an idol. And although God is near, the problem is that people have failed to reach out to him. They've maybe groped around, but they haven't found him. And instead, they've worshipped false gods, the idols that are nothing like the Creator. And that was their problem. They were groping in the dark. They weren't serving the living and true God and serving idols instead. Now, in some societies, like ours, people tend not to be characterised by making things out of stone or wood or precious metals and worshipping them. In other cultures, idolatry seems to abound. Uh, as Arthur pointed out, there was idolatry uh, in his society. Uh, when I went to Indonesia a few years ago, it was, it was pretty apparent. The idols would be put down on the streets with their offerings and the dogs would come and eat them up. Uh, that was just the way it was in that culture, but it's different in Australia. In our society, it seems to me that people don't worship God, but they worship themselves. They live for power or pleasure or both. In fact, it, it's an it's a interesting society when uh, we hear comments which show that people are the centre of all things or the measure of all things. I recently heard a principal uh, say that the most important thing that the kids need to know is to respect themselves. And it strikes me as being a very man-centred thing to say, that man is the measure of all things. Because God's word sheds a different light on who's at the centre of the universe. God sheds, God's word sheds a different light on our meaning and purpose and uh, who we should be worshipping. It's not man who's at the centre. We're the creatures and God's the creator. Even on Friday night, where's Ben? Is he here? He's in the kids' talk. Well, Ben was very good on Friday night as he uh, brought to the kids' attention a passage from Colossians that said, speaking of Jesus, all things were made by him and for him. Jesus is the creator of all things and he's also the goal of creation. Uh, he's the one we've been made for. We've been made for his glory. The most important thing is not so much to respect yourself, while that might be a good thing to do, but the most important thing is to bring glory to God, to enjoy him forever, uh, to set apart Jesus as Lord. We've been made for him and his glory. And so in our society, whilst people might not bow down and worship something made of wood or stone, they tend to be self-absorbed and worship themselves instead of serving God. Now it is a problem to worship idols, uh, whether it's ourselves or anything else. But if that's the problem, what is the solution? Well, Paul continues to point out that it's time to make a change. 
Now is the time to worship the living and true God. We see that in verse 30 and 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. If people have served idols instead of God, that has to change. Now is the time for change. It's interesting to note that people often get passionate about change. Some are very keen to stem global warming. They say now's the time to do something about it. We can still do something. And sometimes people even sing about it too. Uh, Peter Garrett from Midnight Oil sings, Where is the hope of a clean tomorrow? Now's the time to heal. He's saying now's the time to actually do something. Now is the time. There's a sense of urgency that, that's created. Well, I must say, I do think it's a good idea to look after what we've got. That's the first thing I'll say. I like the idea that my children might be able to walk around in national parks and have clean air for tomorrow. And maybe if they have kids too, that that would be the case. And so, whilst it's a good concern and that there is an urgency for us to do something, we've got to remember that there's an even more urgent concern that the world faces. God's word reminds us that the more, there's a more important concern than global warming, and that is the coming judgment of God. And so it's right for Paul to insist that they weigh up who they serve, whether they're going to serve idols or this true God. There is an urgency also for people before they meet God. God calls for change. He calls people everywhere, all kinds of people, to turn away from serving whatever they're serving and to serve him. For even if humanity does have an impact and stop the globe from warming to cool it down, the message from God's word this morning is that people still have to face God on Judgment Day. And Jesus, who is the risen Lord, will be the judge. We see that in verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now for Paul to be speaking about Jesus as the resurrected one who's going to judge, it seems that he would have also spoken about the fact that Jesus died first. I don't think we get everything that Paul says in his speech in this one passage. It seems to probably be uh, compressed to fit into Luke. Uh, but God's word does teach that Jesus did die, that he dies as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the risen Lord, he's the one who can give us life, who can pour out God's spirit into our hearts and to change us. But the big question for each one of us is, do we serve him? Have we yet come to submit to Jesus as our risen Lord and Saviour? Have we asked God for forgiveness, for failing to love and serve him, uh, for failing to always give honour to him and 
to give thanks to him and instead for serving uh, ourselves or other things? That's the big question. We're all going to have to meet God in judgment and give an answer to whether we've served him or whether we've served idols, even serving ourselves. But God knows that and the good news is that's why he has sent Jesus as the one who will take uh, our punishment. He bears it in our place that we might enjoy forgiveness for sins. Well, the responses to Jesus uh, varied in this passage. We see it in verse 32, the responses to Paul, rather. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. In summary, some sneered, uh, they're sceptical. Others were mildly interested, wanted to hear him again. Maybe they liked these new ideas. But a few, not many, uh, they were interested in what he had to say. They wanted to take on board what he said and they were ready to follow him. But the key question for us to grapple with as we think about these things is, who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve ourselves? Are we going to serve Jesus as Lord? Now, it's a good question to think about this time of year at Christmas time. Uh, Christmas is interesting in our society. Its, it's uh, true meaning is often left behind with presents and Santa Claus and all those things that dodge the true meaning behind Christmas. But Christmas still confronts people. Uh, it confronts the, the parent community at school where I work at. Even if they don't like the idea of what it's all about, it, it forces them to think about uh, what's important in life. For a lot of people, the presents are what's important. They like good gifts, the good things that God gives, but they, they don't have a lot of time for God. Well, let us be people who uh, acknowledge the one who gives all men life and breath and everything else. And let us be people who are clear about who we're going to worship, that we actually worship Jesus as Lord and that we love him and we're dedicated to serving him. That's the challenge that Paul had for the people at Athens, not to serve idols or anything else, but to serve the living and true God and to have their trust in Jesus. And that's the challenge for us as well. Let's be people who do love God and seek to serve him with our whole lives. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, you have come into the world in the person of Jesus uh, to deal with our problem of uh, turning away from you and serving other things. Lord, we give you thanks uh, that we have a, a real hope of life with you through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that he has uh, poured out your spirit into our hearts and changed us so that we are people who trust in his work, his uh, sin-bearing sacrifice on the cross for us. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have through his work. We thank you for the, the assurance that we're right with you through what he's done and that we are uh, your people on account of it. Lord, we pray that as we live, you would help us to continue to love you and to serve you and to uh, place you as number one in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this day when we can encourage each other to do the same thing. 
And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.